Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to have all of you back. It's been uh, almost three weeks since the, the last uh, session that we had, uh, the traditional Ask the Expert session. And, and today we're just really delighted uh, with our speaker, uh, somebody who most of you have seen uh, at national meetings for sure. And uh, many of you have seen recently, probably even as of last night, when you log into any of the networks, you will see uh, Dr. Offit, who's a, a, a an amazing, brilliant scientist and uh, who really is a leader in vaccinology. We were able to um, uh, force him into coming into meeting us with today, but uh, I think there's a little bit of a reason or a trick of why we can get him, uh, and he may share some of that. Uh, many years ago, our former chair, Dr. Markowitz, uh, actually saved uh, Paul's life in, uh, in diagnosing a disease that he has, and maybe before he starts, he can actually tell us a little bit about that. So he has... Uh, close ties to the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Connecticut. And uh, thank you, Dr. Markowitz, for keeping uh, Paul safe and able to do what he's done uh, since that time. I'll do a brief introduction. It could take me a whole hour to really give you all the accolades and the things that uh, uh, recognize everything he has done on behalf of the human race, uh, specific with vaccination. But just a couple of things just to make it formal, of course. Uh, Dr. Offit is director of the Vaccine Education Center and professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's the Maurice Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology and the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is uh, internationally recognized and, and the experts in the field of virology and immunology. Uh, he was a member of the advisory committee of immunization practices with the Centers for Disease Control. And as all of you know, uh, he is a current member of the FDA's Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee and a member also of the Institute of Medicine. Uh, he is co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine that all of you use in general practice right now, Rotatech, uh, which is recommended for universal use in infants by the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, for that achievement, he's received many awards, uh, including the Luigi Mastrinani and William Osler Awards from the University of Pennsylvania. School of Medicine, the Charles Murillo Award for the National Foundation of Infectious Diseases, and was honored by Mil Bill and Melinda Gates during the launch of their Foundation Living Proof Project for Global Health. And again, if I list all his accolades of what he has received in recognition of the great work, it just would take the whole hour. He is uh, author of, uh, of a number of books, and uh, I would strongly recommend that you read one, which is called Bad Advice or Why Celebrities, Politicians, and Activists Aren't Your, your Best Source for Health Information. It's published in 2018. And I can't wait to read the next one, which is currently in press, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccinations, The Long Risky History of Medical Breakthroughs. Uh, today, he's going to talk to us about developing the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Uh, it's about a 30, 35 minute presentation with slides, speaks very quickly. So he'll go probably through many slides and then we'll have about 25 to 30 minutes for questions uh, in, in conjunction with uh, John Shriver, who will be joining that, that panel. So uh, <clears throat> Paul, welcome to Connecticut Children's. Really great to have you here. And if you can please go ahead and give your presentation. Thank you very much. Here. Okay, so it's a very quick uh, Milton Markowitz story. So Milton Markowitz was my pediatrician. Um, when I was five years old, I fell from a height. I fell off a slide at a nursery school and um, way there unconscious supposedly for 30 minutes. They, this was you know in the 1950s. So they just put me on a bus and sent me home. And for a day I complained of abdominal pain. My mother took me to the doctor. The doctor said that, uh, that I was just um, trying to get attention 
um, for, you know, just attention-seeking behavior. Milton Markowitz was out of town. He, he was my doctor, but he was out of town. When he came back the next night, uh, my, my mother asked if he would come to see me. And, and so here he does. He gets in his car. He drives to our home. He examines me, says that he thinks I had a ruptured spleen. Um, my father asked, and that I should be operated on immediately. My father asked my his father, my grandfather to come over. My grandfather sort of insisted that there be a second opinion. Milton Markowitz said, there's not time. He's, he's, uh, he's hemorrhaging into his abdomen. So he put me in his car. I'll never forget this. I remember being in my pajamas. He take, put me in his car and drove me to the hospital and I was operated on, had about a quart of blood in my abdomen. He saved my life. I mean, Milton Markowitz saved my life. And there was no doubt in my mind, I, I went into medicine and ultimately pediatrics because of that image of Milton Markowitz it's not just from that moment, but just of him as a doctor. I remember him coming to our house and opening up that big black bag. That was Milton Markowitz. I have an enormous amount of affection for Dr. Markowitz and certainly his memory. In any case, moving along here with um, the, where we stand on a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Um, so this is a virus, SARS-CoV-2, which was just isolated and sequenced in January of last year. So, so we've only really had it in hand for a year. Um, but, but there are things, there's much that we know. Um, we know that it is a, it is a single-stranded uh, positive sense RNA virus, um, that the key protein is the spike protein. That's the protein that emanates from the surface of the virus and gives it its crown-like appearance, hence corona. Um, it's, um, it, that protein is, is the protein that binds the virus to cells. So therefore the thinking is antibodies directed against that protein will then prevent virus cell binding. Um, the key part of that protein is shown here on the right, the so-called receptor binding domain. You're going to be reading a lot about that as these variants come up. Um, the UK variant, the so-called B117 variant, there's now a South African variant, a Brazilian variant. And when these variants come up, people are going to be looking to see whether or not there are significant changes in a variety of clusters, epitopes in, in that receptor binding domain, um, to see whether or not these, these variants escape, will escape recognition by vaccine-induced immunity. Um, to date, that hasn't happened. It certainly certainly didn't happen for the UK variant. Um, people are now looking at the South African variant, variant, but that too doesn't look like it's happened. So um, we'll see. I mean, is, it's, it's a single-stranded RNA virus. It's going to mutate. It's going to create variants. Um, so then the question is going to be, which of the two uh, RNA viruses is it going to be like? It's, is it going to be like flu, another single-stranded segmented RNA virus that mutates so much from one year to the next that you need a yearly vaccine because natural infection or immunization the year before doesn't protect you? Or is it going to be like measles, where, which also generates variants? But we've had a measles vaccine since 1963, and that virus has never mutated away from the vaccine. So that's going to be key, um, is, to, is to very quickly sequence these strains. And I think we need to be better at that in the U.S. and, uh, and then identify variants when they pop up and, and quickly determine, which you can do very quickly, whether it seems to be escaping vaccine recognition. Okay, so the, this is just the list of the sort of the uh, clinical trials that are going on in the U.S. The two that are, are completed are, are at the top, the Moderna and Pfizer mRNA vaccines, both of which are now approved by the uh, FDA for emergency use authorization. So we're going to focus on those two vaccines. So messenger RNA vaccines. Um, so the way this, this works is that you take messenger RNA, which in this case codes for the coronavirus spike protein. You encase it in a complex lipid delivery system, a, a nanoparticle essentially. 
uh, which is not easily scaled up, by the way. It's one of the problems with uh, mass production is that lipid nanoparticle. Now, this is not, not your typical messenger RNA. It's modified RNA, which is actually where the word Moderna comes from. Um, it's modified in, by, instead of using um, just the typical nucleosides, it, there are nucleoside analogs, such as pseudouridine and others, that are, that are placed into that messenger RNA for two purposes. One, to stabilize the molecule so it doesn't break down so quickly, because messenger RNA is a highly labile molecule and will break down very quickly in the face of uh, ribonucleases, and also to make it so that it does not stimulate innate immunity. I mean, messenger RNA in the past has been used actually as an adjuvant for rabies vaccines and others, um, so that it doesn't stimulate innate immunity, which can uh, be distracting from the adaptive immunity that you're trying to generate. Um, by innate immunity, I mean stimulating toll-like receptors like TLR3, 7, and 8. So, so it's a modified mRNA. Okay, so what happens now, because it's in the lipid nanoparticle, which protects, protects the molecule, it's then take, injected intramuscularly, but ultimately really it's not the myocyte that's the key cell here. It's really dendritic cells, which take up the, um, this lipid nanoparticle, which is then uncoats, the messenger RNA enters the ribosomal system. And then either three things, one of three things happen. Either one, the whole protein is put on the surface of the cell, the whole protein is excreted from the cell, or the protein is broken down into these sort of 10 to 15 mer uh, peptides and then put on the surface of the cell. Um, the, the, um, that, that, uh, that dendritic cell then travels to the local draining lymph node, um, where, um, and, which is the reason actually that a significant percentage of people who get this vaccine will develop ipsilateral lymphadenopathy. And then that, um, the, 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 um, that, the, the peptides that are on the surface of that dendritic cell, also to some extent subcapsular macrophages are involved, will stimulate uh, uh, T cell dependent B cell responses uh, as well as uh, cytotoxic T cell responses. And, and, and it is a, it's a powerful immunogen. I think that, that when you're, as we're gonna go through some of these data, the fact that people see the degree of side effects that you have associated with this uh, vaccine is because it is a powerful immunogen. Okay, so the Pfizer vaccine um, is, was being developed by Pfizer in collaboration with a small German company called BioNTech. Um, it's, it's a two-dose vaccine given at 30 micrograms per dose, three weeks apart. The vaccine comes as a, as a concentrated five-dose uh, vial, which has to be reconstituted. Um, there are definitely storage and handling um, issues with this vaccine in that it has to be shipped and stored at roughly minus 70 to minus 80 degrees centigrade, which means, which means uh, dry ice. Once thawed, it has a refrigerator life of about five days. Once reconstituted, it has a life of about six hours. So it, this is a challenge, especially in rural areas, um, to give this kind of vaccine. You know, I should go back a second. The, the Beyond Tech has said that this is all relates to the lipid uh, nanoparticle. I mean, the, 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 the reason that this is as uh, re need, requires this level of storage and handling is because they can use a better lipid delivery system. And Beyond Tech has said that they thought they could have that in hand within a year. We'll see whether or not that happens. It's too bad they didn't wait to actually make a better lipid delivery system because this is a challenging vaccine, I think, to distribute in, into the real world. Okay, so safety-wise, um, you've probably all read all about this. It, it does have a difficult, if you will, safety profile and that people who get this vaccine can suffer fatigue, headaches, fever, including high fever, chills, uh, muscle pain, joint pain, um, as compared to uh, placebo. 
And um, as a general rule, it's worse after the second dose than the first dose. As a general rule, it's worse in people who are less than 55 years of age than people who are over uh, uh, 55 years of age, just owing to the uh, vigorousness of the immune system as you get older. But th this is an issue. And I think people need to be aware of this before they get these vaccines so they're not surprised. I mean, I've gotten a lot of calls from physicians who said, this really knocked me out for a day. I mean, significant fatigue, headache, chills, you know, just didn't sleep well at night, missed a day or two of work so that people need to understand that. I think, you know, we always call these adverse events or side effects, but this is just your immune system working. I, I think, you know, the immune system needs a better public relations team um, to try and uh, uh, explain that you should be happy about this. Actually, a friend of mine in North Carolina volunteered for the Pfizer trial. And so he didn't know whether he was going to get the vaccine or placebo. But after he got the second dose, the next morning he had headache, fatigue, low-grade fever, and he wakes up and tells his wife, yes, I got the vaccine. See, that's that's the right attitude. Okay, the good news is it, is it really lasts a day or two, usually by day three, the, uh, the symptoms have subsided. So if you can get through this, um, it's worth it. Okay, immunogenicity wise, again, this is a two dose vaccine. So you see that you can see the immune response here. This is, these, are, these are people who develop a virus specific neutralizing antibodies in their bloodstream. And, and I wanna make the point here that you develop a much better immune response after your, your second dose than your first dose. As compared to human convalescent serum, as you see on the right, you need two doses of this vaccine. And I think um, not just that you developed a better neutralizing antibody response, you also developed a more detectable uh, T helper cell or cytotoxic T cell responses, which is consistent with having a, a decent amount of immunological memory. So when you hear people like Monsef Slally, who heads Operation Warp Speed, or others, there was an, actually an op-ed uh, piece written um, in the Washington uh, Post the other day, arguing for giving as many people as you can a single dose and then waiting to get the second dose. Um, I think that's a bad idea. Um, it's not a bad idea if everybody gets a second dose, you know, not necessarily three weeks later, but four weeks later. I don't think that's a big deal. But if it's going to be three or four months later, that is a big deal. Um, you need that second dose. And I, I worry about disrupting an immunization program so people aren't sure when they get the second dose, because I think that makes it all the more likely they're not going to get that second dose. So I think that was one of the many bad ideas that occasionally surround this, this vaccine program. And this just shows you again the, the, um, the, the capacity for this vaccine to induce uh, CD4 and CD8 uh, responses that compare favorably actually to those that are found after human, uh, human, uh, human convalescence here or blood. Okay, the efficacy. This this is just shows the um, the 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 is another thing that you hear about is that that when these trials are done, you know, you give one dose, then you give a second dose. So there's that period of time between dose one and two when you can see whether or not there's any efficacy. And and here you can see there's you're starting to separate then the placebo group from the vaccine group. With Pfizer's vaccine, um, the there was about a 52% efficacy with wide confidence interval because the numbers were small. But this again is is I think why it is that it's it's not a great idea. To, to just go with a single dose. You're, you're a large, large percentage of people aren't going to be protected. And we only know from these studies that you're protected for three weeks, which is, you know, not a lot of time. And it may be, you know, that it, it, it isn't three or four months later, there is a, a critical drop in protection. So again, that's where that comes from. Um, th this, the, the, the protective efficacy is remarkable. I think if you ask the thousand scientists uh, in January of 2020, when we had just isolated the virus, do you think that within 11 months, we're going to do these two huge trials? In the case of Pfizer, there's a 44,000 person trial, roughly. 
um, that, that shows you know, that, that a vaccine is 95% effective using two novel or using a novel strategy, messenger RNA, um, not only 95% effective uh, in general, but 95% effective or greater against severe disease, against for, for, for people over 65, people with a variety of comorbidities. I think no one would have thought that was possible. So th this really is a testament actually to our ability to get this done quickly. The reason that happened is that we spent money. We spent about $24 billion on this, this, uh, this program by basically taking the risk out of it for many of the pharmaceutical companies, not Pfizer, because Pfizer acted independent of warp, op Operation Warp Speed. But um, you know, we basically paid for phase three trials, which costs hundreds of millions of dollars. We paid to mass produce the vaccine at risk, meaning not knowing whether it was safe, not knowing whether it was effective. Um, which costs hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and um, because we put the money into this, we got a remarkable result. Um, also, the numbers are small here in the Pfizer trial, but you can see that there is um, protection as well against severe disease in, with small numbers, and therefore very wide confidence intervals. The, the numbers were higher, as you'll see in a second, in the Moderna trial. Okay, the Moderna vaccine, um, here again, the, um, the, the handling and uh, storage uh, requirements are a little more friendly where it can be shipped and stored at freezer temperature. It can remain in the refrigerator once thawed for up to 30 days. And um, once, um, once uh, it's, it's, um, the, it's, the vial is open and stuff, it, uh, it, um, can, it can be, it's good for, for a number of days. So I think that's, uh, it comes in multi-dose files, but doesn't have to be reconstituted. And this is a two-dose vaccine that's given not at 30 micrograms per dose, but 100 micrograms per, per dose, which again emphasizes the point that although these are both mRNA vaccines, they are different mRNA molecules. So, so when people talk about, you know, can I just get the Pfizer vaccine, then the Moderna vaccine, no, they're, they're different molecules and the CDC does not recommend in any way mixing these vaccines. Uh, the safety issues are about the same. Um, you can see after the first injection, there still is a fairly significant amount of fatigue and headache and muscle pains and arthralgia, chills, et cetera. So, and, um, it, and as was true for the Pfizer vaccine, it's worse after the, the second dose of, of this vaccine, um, but we just need to hang in there. Immunogenicity, again, you can see a, a dramatic increase after the second dose as compared to the first dose. Again, arguing for the fact that you need that second dose uh, to induce uh, better frequent, higher frequencies of memory B and T cells to induce higher levels of virus-specific neutralizing antibodies in the sera. I, I really worry with this push for one dose, which is, is, uh, is being done at some level in the UK. And, um, and has been pushed for here that this in no sense succeed as, succeeds as a strategy because I think it's a bad one. And again, this just shows you the, the capacity to induce that, uh, that CD4 uh, T helper cell response after dose two versus dose one. The efficacy is again remarkable. So this is really in many ways an independent confirmation of, the, of what was seen with, with the Pfizer trial. I mean, so it's, it's a different mRNA molecule. It's different, regular, different, uh, different uh, study sites, different population. This was a 30,000 person uh, trial. And uh, you can see there were 185 cases in the placebo group, 11 in the, in the vaccine group. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 11 in the vaccine group, again, for roughly 95% efficacy. So these are remarkably similar results and therefore make one, makes one feel much better about uh, how real those first results were. So amazing. 
Um, here, there were many more people who, who had severe disease, and there was actually one death. So there were, there were uh, 30 cases of severe disease in the placebo group, none in the vaccine group, and there was a death in the placebo group, which once again, I think, makes the point that, um, you know, when, when you do these, these trials, um, you, um, the only way you learn about whether or not something works or whether it's safe is is with human trial and 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 humans suffer this. I mean, there, that death in the um, in the uh, in the placebo group was owing just to the flip of a coin. <clears throat> it's very likely that, that person wouldn't have died had had uh, he or she been in the in the uh, in the vaccine group. And I guess since we're talking about like when I was younger, I mean, I was a child of the 1950s, so I remember the the polio trials. And and when Jonas Salk made his inactivated polio vaccine, which he did just by growing up polio, purifying it and killing it with a chemical, he didn't want to do a prospective placebo control trial. It broke his heart to do that trial um, because he knew that there was going to be a polio epidemic that summer because there always was. He knew that his vaccine induced neutralizing antibodies that were likely to be protective. And he couldn't stomach the notion of giving children a normal saline as a control. And, you know, 420,000 children were given his vaccine, 200,000 were given uh, placebo. And uh, when um, Thomas Francis announced that trial at Rackham Hall and said those three famous words, safe, potent, and effective, the three words that end up on the headline of every newspaper in this country, Jonas Salk's vaccine is safe, potent, and effective. He could say it was effective because 16 children died of polio in that study all of whom had received the, the saline control. And uh, 36 children either were severely and permanently paralyzed or placed in iron lungs, 34 of whom had received that saline control. So that was never really heralded. I think the, those gentle heroes we leave behind in studies like this are really never appreciated and they should be. Okay, well, one of the questions I get asked a lot is uh, can, because it's a genetic vaccine, really the first of the genetic vaccines, um, and, we, and others are to follow. The replication defective uh, simulator human adenoviruses, DNA vaccines are all sort of the genetic, this sort of new wave of genetic vaccines. Um, can mRNA vaccine alter our DNA? No, <laughs> for three reasons. First of all, um, it's actually not easy to get the mRNA into the cell. The lipid uh, uh, nanoparticle helps with that. Once it's in the cell, in the cytoplasm, it would have to get across the nuclear membrane and integrate into DNA. In order for that to happen, this, va this vaccine would have to have a nuclear access signal, which it doesn't. So it really can't get into the, into the nucleus. Even if it got into the nucleus, which it can't, it, it's, it's mRNA. So it would have to be reverse transcribed to DNA using a reverse transcriptase, which this vaccine doesn't contain. So even if it got into the, into the nucleus, which it can't, or is reverse transcribed, which it can't be because it doesn't have that enzyme, still it would have to integrate itself into DNA, which would require the enzyme integrase, which it also doesn't have. So there's really, it's not like it's, there's a small chance it could affect your, your DNA. There's a 0% chance you could affect your DNA. I mean, you have as much chance of, of, of getting this vaccine and becoming Spider-Man as you have of, of uh, of it's actually affecting your DNA. And although technically, just so we get the science right, Spider-Man became Spider-Man because he was bitten by a radioactive spider. Okay, that's how he became Spider-Man. Okay, the, well, I'll just finish off with the CDC recommendation, recommendations and then take your um, questions. So people who have a history of SARS-CoV-2 infection can receive this vaccine. Uh, in the Pfizer vaccine, there were uh, people who um, 
had previously been infected. So you can actually look at that subset and they actually did benefit from, from getting that vaccine for the obvious reason that they had a booster response. Uh, there's no reason not to get it. The only recommendation would be obviously to wait until you're uh, fully recovered from your infection. Also programmatically, it would be very hard to screen people uh, to see whether or not they'd been previously infected with SARS-CoV-2 before you decided whether or not they got a vaccine. It's just be very difficult to do. It's hard enough to do this as it is. Um, regarding immunocompromised people, obviously there's not a lot of data on this, whether it's, it's uh, acquired or congenital immunodeficiencies. Um, so the CDC has pretty much just uh, taken a, a step back and just said that people should be counseled about, uh, about uh, this, that, there, they, that we don't know a lot about safety, we don't know a lot about efficacy. Um, I think um, the worst case scenario is that a, a vaccine wouldn't be as effective. I mean, these aren't live attenuated viruses, so the absence of an immune response doesn't put you at risk. I think it just made you, you're just not going to develop a very good immune response. But uh, that's, that's currently where the CDC stands on this. Um, regarding pregnant women, again, there, there were 23 women who, were, who became pregnant, either were or became pregnant during the uh, Pfizer trial. There were 13 women who were or became pregnant during the, uh, the, the uh, Moderna trial, and they pretty much split into, vac into vaccine and control group. There were two cases of spontaneous abortion, interestingly, one in each of the groups, and both, in both cases, it was in the placebo group. So again, that usually what the CDC does in these cases when there aren't, clearly aren't data showing that the vaccine is is, uh, is safe or effective, they, they, they punt. They say it's contraindicated absent data, but not here. Here, what, as you can see on the bottom, they, the, the recommendation is that one can reasonably choose to be vaccinated because women who are pregnant are at increased risk of severe SARS-CoV-2 infection as compared to women of the same age who aren't pregnant. So we know that. And we know that there's, there's probably no good biological reason to expect this vaccine would be harmful to the mother or to the uh, unborn child. So the CDC has taken a more proactive stance on this and said, pregnant women can choose to be vaccinated. Same thing with breastfeeding or lactating women that they can choose to be breast to can choose to breastfeed while in the midst of getting these vaccines. And then uh, in terms of what to do after you're vaccinated, um, uh, the, the, the recommendation is to really continue to do hygienic measures, even if you've been vaccinated. So still wear a mask, social distance, wash hands, try and avoid crowds for a couple of reasons. One, because no vaccine is 100% effective. And even though you, a, this vaccine is 95% effective, um, that still means one out of every 20 people could still get disease. And we still don't really yet know whether or not this vaccine prevents asymptomatic infection where one could still shed and arguably still be contagious. So I think their feeling of the CDC is to just, once we, is to at least still do this, still use hygienic measures until um, we, we uh, are able to um, stop the spread of this virus. And then regarding anaphylaxis, I'm not sure I have this here. Yeah, I have this here. So th this is a, um, uh, just came out uh, in the last couple of days out of MMWR. The, the, the finding is, is that, um, that uh, the, there have been cases of anaphylaxis following the Pfizer vaccine. There, uh, to my knowledge, there was only one case so far following Moderna, but I could be wrong. There could be more than that. Um, then the, the, the rate then is about 11 per million. So 11 cases of severe anaphylaxis per million people who receive the vaccine. That's higher than the, the, what you would argue is the background rate for anaphylaxis following vaccines in general, which is about one per million. But because of that background rate, because one per million people who get any vaccine could have an anaphylactic reaction, the recommendation is always after to get a vaccine to wait for 15 minutes in the office. So that's still true here. The only difference is if you've had a history of a severe anaphylaxis, 
anaphylactic reaction for any reason, uh, either food or medical product, um, now you're recommended to wait 30 minutes in, in, in the area around where you got the vaccine so that you can get a shot of epinephrine if you need it. I mean, anaphylaxis is a, a frightening event. Um, but the good news is it's, it's readily recognized. It happens within typically within 30 minutes of, of getting a vaccine and it's also readily treated with epinephrine. So um, that's that. Okay, and that's all I have. Thank you for your attention. This is our Vaccine Education Center uh, um, a URL at CHOP um, where we try and give people good information about vaccines and vaccine safety. So thanks for your attention. I'm assuming you were paying attention so I can't see anybody, but if you were paying attention, thank you. Uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, outstanding presentation as always. Uh, and uh, we have uh, uh, close to 300 people that have joined this meeting and uh, we'll have a, a ton of questions coming up. The, and let me begin with, uh, uh, there, there are a couple of questions about the delivery systems and uh, the difference between Moderna and Pfizer and why, why does one require uh, a lower temperature versus the other? And is there something that they can do to mitigate that for Pfizer? Um, yeah, I'm not sure specifically about the chemistry that allows one to be more stable than the other. Um, the, the, I can tell BioNTech is interested in essentially duplicating what Moderna has done and making a better liquid delivery system. So we'll see, they, they say they, they could do that in a year. Uh, hopefully we've gotten control of this virus in a year, um, but, but we'll see. The other thing is in terms of the um, anaphylactic reaction, the, the, the current thinking is it's probably the polyethylene glycol moiety that is part of that lipid uh, particle, um, which, and, and polyethylene glycol can cause a severe anaphylactic reaction. So that's the thinking. People don't think it's the mRNA per se. It's, it's probably the delivery system. Okay, great. Um, another question that has been a pediatric group. Uh, when, when do you expect that we will have uh, a, a, an indication for children under the age of 12? Right, so, so I think children should be vaccinated. Uh, although if you look at sort of the, the instance of, of uh, infection, children is obviously lower. The, I think the, the total percentage of people in the United States who are less than 21 is about 26% of the US population, but they account for only for 0.08% of the deaths as compared to say nursing homes, which is 40% plus of the deaths. Um, but nonetheless, children can, can suffer this, this virus, children can be hospitalized with this virus, and children do occasionally die from this virus. So if you can prevent this virus in them safely, then prevent it. Um, obviously, we're not going to just extrapolate what we're finding in adults uh, to children. We need to do studies in children, and those are being done. They've, they've already started to be done. Um, but down to even very young children. I know Jeff Gerber at our hospital, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, is, uh, is heading the trials in children. So, so I, I think that, that those data will be generated, um, hopefully by at least uh, next summer, so that when children go back to school, they can be vaccinated. But I, I do think we do need to vaccinate children, including young children. You know, Pfizer went down to 16 years of age, so um, they have some data on, on uh, older children. But um, now we're going to be doing trials, even down to children, you know, in the first couple years of life. Great, thanks. Uh, Paul, will we need a, a new formulation every year, like influenza? Can you comment on that? God, I hope not. I mean, think about how hard it's been to get this vaccine out. Um, the, the, so there's two reasons that could happen. One is because immunity fades. And so you need to get a booster dose. That, that's possible, but I, I'm, I'm going to guess not. Um, and the, the other possibility is, is, is the notion of, of variation. I, 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 obviously, this, this virus is an RNA virus, so it mutates. Um, we need to constantly be vigilant about these variants. But to date, 
There isn't evidence that a variant has been created which has resisted um, recognition by this vaccine. And the way to know that, by the way, is to look at people who convalesce, who have convalesced from the, the non-variant strain, do their antibodies neutralize this virus? And that there's two studies that show yes for the UK strain. And then just yesterday, um, Pfizer did a study looking at people who uh, were vaccinated with their vaccine, you know, take antibodies after that second dose and, and ask the question, does did those antibodies neutralize the UK variant? And the answer is yes. So with regard to the South African strain, so far I haven't seen those studies. I've just seen studies done with monoclonal antibodies, which doesn't help you because you know, it's obviously a polyclonal response that's generated against the receptor binding domain. You have to have a number of sequence changes that would get you away from, uh, from the vaccine. So I haven't seen those studies yet. Just like you occasionally see articles in like, or reports on CBS News that, that people are worried. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't help. Just, just do the studies. We're all worried. Just do the studies. Thanks. Uh, there's a question that says, can you provide guidance for a scenario that an EMT was vaccinated, exposed to COVID-2 two days later, and four days later developed disease? He's scheduled for vaccine number two in two weeks. If he's well, can we stick with that schedule? And generally, do we wait beyond isolation time to administer number one or number two? Please advise. Yeah, so, so, there, there, so there's re the recommendation by the CDC is, is if you've been previously infected, wait until you're asymptomatic to, to get a, a dose of vaccine. Or if you, you've been infected and you're quarantined, wait until after you're out of quarantine. So whichever, I guess, is later in this case. Okay, great. Um, and there are a couple, you, you, I think you've already addressed uh, breastfeeding and, and, and pregnancy, uh, but specifically, if somebody comes to you in, in the office at CHOP and, and, and says, you know, I'm, a, uh, you know, I'm pregnant, um, I, should I get vaccinated? What do you tell them? Yes, I think you should. I, I, it's not, so, so the, the, the virus, the, the, the vaccine is taken up by dendritic cells. It, it, it's, it's the mRNA will then manufacture a protein for, for days um, and then break down. The, the, because it's quickly taken up by dendritic cells, the, the, and, and that, which then travel to the local lymph node, the question is to what extent dendritic cells will cross the, the, the uh, placental membrane? Not, probably not terribly well, would be my guess. Um, so then you're just talking about antibodies passively uh, tra being transferred at least once the, the uh, baby's over 32 weeks gestation. I mean, I just, it's uh, theoretically, I can't think of a good reason for why uh, antibodies directed against SARS-CoV-2 spike protein would be damaging to, to the baby. Um, and we know that the mother's at increased risk. It's the same reason we give mothers flu vaccine and pestis vaccine. Um, so I, I put this in that category. I mean, we'll, we'll be generating data. I mean, now what uh, the CDC is doing, they have this V-safe system where anybody who's, who's gotten the vaccine who is pregnant then reports into the system and is followed weekly to, to see how, how both the mother's doing and then how the, the baby does uh, post-birth just to make sure that there are no problems. But I think the benefits of that way outweigh what are at this point only theoretical risks. Great, thank you. Um, an immunology question is the is the spike protein expressed on local myocytes or is it uh, uh, secreted and, and uh, freely available throughout the you know it, it, throughout a lymph node system or lymphoreticular system what what are your thoughts on that yeah, so I think myocytes are not the key cell here I, I think it's it's dendritic cells and subcapsular macrophages but or said another way professional antigen presenting cells um, because people wonder about that they're they're arguing well you know let's suppose you're you're if the myocyte is a critical cell and you develop a cytotoxic T cell response wouldn't it be true then that you would then damage your own cytotoxic your own uh, muscle cells and that doesn't seem to happen I mean there's you know obviously pain at the injection site but it goes away there doesn't seem to be muscle breakdown. Um, that you see, for example, days or weeks later associated with a vigorous cytotoxic T cell response. So I think the myocyte is not a critical cell. 
any uh, any reason to believe that there's less protection in patients over 65? Um, so, so that wasn't seen. I mean, with, with the Pfizer trial and Moderna trial, I think one was greater than 95, one was 95%, the other was around 86%, but that's, that's excellent. I mean, certainly much better than you see, say, with flu vaccine. But yes, there is a reason to believe it because as you get older, um, you know, your immune system becomes more senescent. So, um, but that here, it appears to be vigorous. I mean, it's like, I mean, you could make the same argument. So, so for example, the flu vaccine does not work very well in people over 65. The shingles vaccine, on the other hand, Shingrix, works very well in people over 65 or over 75 because of that powerful, you know, QS21 like adjuvant. That's why. And for whatever reason, this, this vaccine also appears to induce a vigorous immune response, even in people who are older. Great. Um, this is a, a, a beautiful question. It says once grandparents are vaccinated, can grandkids hug and kiss their grandchildren safely? <laughs> um, well, yeah, certainly more safely. You know, the the uh, again, the vaccine isn't one hundred percent effective. You can still, um, you know, so so the grandparent is, you know, is 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 not completely free of risk, but so it becomes a risk benefit thing. The the value of being hugged and kissed versus the possibility of acquiring the virus, knowing you may be one of those one in twenty who isn't protected. Thanks. Uh, it, it, based on on your analysis of the data, is there any any evidence that uh, recipients of the vaccines? can sustain mild infection uh, and infect close contacts. Can they shed? Can they shed virus despite being vaccinated? So, so there, there are studies that are now being done or that are proposed to be, to be done. Hopefully we'll get the money for this on college campuses doing it the right way. Vaccinate people, don't vaccinate people, and then do contact tracing to see whether or not, just not, not just whether somebody's shedding virus, but that doesn't really necessarily tell you whether they're they're, they're being, they're, they're infectious or they're contagious. That's only going to be determined by contact tracing. That's hard to do. I, I would say this though. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to be part of, te of a team at Children's Hospital Philadelphia that created uh, the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech. Um, our vaccine does not protect against asymptomatic infection. It doesn't. I mean, you can still shed virus even after you've gotten our vaccine. Nonetheless, we have virtually eliminated rotavirus from the United States. So it's really not a, it's sort of a binary thing, kind of shedding, non-shedding. I think people who are, vaccinated with this vaccine, although they may still develop asymptomatic infection shed, I'm going to predict they shed less um, than they would had they not been vaccinated. Yeah. Again, that's that's uh, to be determined. Well, I think Moderna, Moderna generated some data uh, only with like 100 people showing that there was a reduction with vaccinated who had nasal swabs, just looking at, our, just looking at PCR. It's a 50% reduction, but it was a really small number of people. Also, you know, you're, you're assuming, you know, with, first of all, probably the better test is quantity of infectious virus, which people often don't do. And, um, and you really need to see whether that actually equals contagiousness. So when they do these studies, hopefully they'll do them on college campuses, then they can go back and look to see whether there really is a biomarker to predict, you know, contagiousness. The other thing that's weird about this virus, just, just from a virologist standpoint, um, you know, you, you usually shed infectious virus for about, you know, six days, seven days, uh, but you can be PCR positive for three months, which is to say that the virus continues to make messenger RNA, but doesn't make infectious virus particles. I mean, what virus does that? This is the weirdest virus, this SARS-CoV-2. I mean, you know, it comes out of Wuhan, billed as a winter respiratory virus. It is certainly far more than that. I mean, it causes vasculitis, it causes multi-system disease in children, it causes loss of taste and smell. It's been detected in people occasionally by neuropathologists in the brain. Um, it, it is a, um, it can spread at some level in the summer, you know, which it did in Florida and Texas, even though it's a small droplet envelope virus, you know, it just, uh, 
It's just a weird virus. So, you, so therefore, when you ask me, what, what do I think is going to happen in six months or nine months, I shouldn't say anything because I'm always wrong about this virus. So Paul, John, another question. I mean, another a question. question for you. Um, so the AstraZeneca virus, you mentioned elegantly that the mRNA does not get in the nucleus. It's not going to be integrated in the genome and it's not an issue. But the um, AstraZeneca, the adenovirus vector virus is a DNA vaccine and potentially it presumably gets in the nucleus. What are your thoughts about that vaccine? Right, so, so the, and so, so it's a replication defective simian adenovirus. So, so it, it's, it's replication defective, therefore it can't reproduce itself, therefore it can't cause disease, but it can enter the cell, it can enter the nucleus. And then it, it, it co-ops nuclear machinery so that it, it, it allows the, that DNA that now is gonna be associated with the spike protein to be transcribed to messenger RNA, which then enters the cytoplasm, which is then translated to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Um, I have a lot of problems with this, this vaccine um, for this reason. It's the, the trials that were done initially um, by this UK group. So it's, it's it, this, the, the um, research institute is, the, is the, the Jenner Institute out of the University of Oxford in collaboration with AstraZeneca. Um, were done, those trials were done both in the United Kingdom and Brazil. And they did two different dosing strategies. One was half dose, full dose. The so half dose was like 20, uh, so it was 50, the full dose was 50 uh, billion viral particles. The half dose was 25 billion vi viral particles because it's replication defective. You have to give a lot of virus. So they did half dose, full dose in one site, full dose, full dose in another site. They did a one month interval in one site. They did it up to three month interval in the other site. They had different placebo groups. One was normal saline. The other was meningococcal vaccine. Then they combined those two, two trials. I mean, you can't do that. You have to have a trial. I mean, you can't have different dosing strategies and different dosing regimens um, and then try and combine that. I didn't like that. I also didn't like their phase one trial. If you, if you look at the, the, which was published, so you actually got to look at it. Um, so they vaccinated a thousand people, um, 500 with their vaccine and 500 people with meningococcal vaccine. They took the 500 people who got one dose of their 50 uh, billion uh, viral particle dose. And then they took 35 of those people to see whether they had neutralizing antibodies. Why only 35? I mean, where were the other 465? Why did you just pick those 35? Then they did four different assays to see whether they had neutralizing antibodies, which sort of comes off a little bit as assay shopping. Let's see if we can find the best one. And they decided that wasn't good enough, that it didn't compare favorably to the neutralizing antibody titers seen after, after wild type virus infection, natural infection. So then they took 10 people out of that group of 35, non-randomly gave them a second dose of the full dose, the 50 you know, billion uh, viral particles, and declared that to be their vaccine strategy. I mean, that, that's not a phase one trial. If you're gonna do a phase one trial, do different doses, do different dosing intervals if that's what you wanna see. And that's when you decide what to, how to move forward. You can't sort of figure that out in phase three. It doesn't work that way in any case. The, the trial is currently going on in the US, as far as I know, as a two-dose strategy, full-dose, full-dose, a month apart. When those, those studies are completed, love to see the data. But until now, I'm a little suspicious of that. There were also two clinical holds with that vaccine, one in July, one in September, the first one for, uh, quote-unquote, um, undiagnosed multiple sclerosis, the second for transverse myelitis. Um, the, the decisions by UK regulators at the time was that these were coincidental and not causal associations, but they're both based on the same pathogenesis, which is to say B and T cell responses against myelin-basic protein. So that's a little worrisome. Also, you know, it, it, they had, it, when they had vaccinated 18,000 people, so 9,000 people who got gotten the vaccine, um, th they saw a case of transverse myelitis. That's statistically odd. I mean, the background rate of transverse myelitis is around one per 200,000. So that's, it's a statistical bizarre. So I'm a little worried about, about that vaccine. 
Um, I'm actually on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee, so that, that, that we haven't been told when we're going to be seeing data from that or from Johnson & Johnson yet. We haven't, usually we're given a couple weeks notice but before um, we're going to be meeting because you have to put uh, you have to put that in the federal register for 15 days before we meet. And so we haven't heard about either of those vaccines yet. So I, I'd be surprised if we if either of those were something we, we heard about this month. Thank you, Paul. I have a really interesting question, a provocative question uh, from one of our endocrinologists. Can people who have received two vaccine, the uh, two dosages of, of the any of the mRNA vaccines donate plasma? Um, yeah, so they would be donating plasma that to some extent would, would have um, SARS-CoV-2 spike protein antibodies, or, or proteins in it, both, arguably, proteins and antibodies. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't see what the downside of that would be. I mean, arguably it's upside for people. You get some probably passive immunity for, you know, the, 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 the weeks or arguably months before those antibodies fade. Um, I know of no, no contraindication at blood banks for, for giving vaccine, for, for giving uh, um, blood then. I'm not sure, I, I don't, I mean, this is a little out of my, my expert range of expertise, but I wonder if blood banks have rules about how soon after a vaccine you can give blood. I don't know. It, it, it thinks more as a therapeutic, you know, the hyperimmune, you know, the hyperimmune oh, class. Yeah, so, so in terms of that, um, giving um sort of hyperimmune sera, if you will, after getting a vaccine. Um, I, I think that the, the, the degree to which that's therapeutic is the degree, it depends on how early you give it in the infection, you know, because the way infections work, like these viral infections, is the peak replication is very early in the disease. And then as you start to develop an immune response and, and you know, limit uh, viral uh, replication, then viral replication becomes a less and less important part of pathogenesis. So by that time, somebody has moderate to severe disease, it's a much less important part of pathogenesis, which is why monoclonal and, uh, and uh, uh, human convalescence era don't work as well later in infection. Same thing's true for antivirals. So the earlier is the better. Yeah, thanks. Uh, there, there's a, an, an interesting question is, uh, and, and relates to, uh, you were sitting in the FDA panel. I'm not sure you can reveal everything that happened, but, but not everyone voted in favor for the, for the Pfizer-BioNTech product. Why was that? Well, first of all, those are open meetings to the public. They were, I think it was televised on C-SPAN, uh, that first meeting, which was, I think it's not going to be like a, a weekly show. You know, it's not like they got a lot of advertisers. After that show. It's cause a little boring. But um, no, first of all, the, the documents that we get, which are the first is the, uh, the, from the sponsor, the company that submits, that's publicly available. Then the FDA reviews all the clinical data and comes up with another 100-page document. That's publicly available. So this is all transparent. It is a transparent process. The reason that four people voted against the, um, the Pfizer vaccine was because they misunderstood the instruction. That was it. The, the, the people thought there was going to be a vote on whether or not we recommended approval for this vaccine in those over 18 years of age. Um, but the, the EUA submission from Pfizer was they wanted approval down to 16 years of age because they did have children, included children, down to 16 years of age. Um, what the, the people were arguing was that, you know, if you look at that 16 to 17 year old subset, that wasn't a lot of people. And so did we really know enough to give, give the vaccine up to the 16 year old? My argument against that was that, you know, it, it, you can do that for any subset, the 18 to 19 year old, the 20 to 21 year old. I mean, is there any really reason biologically to think that there would be a different safety or efficacy profile in the 17 year old versus the 18 year old? No. So, so don't hang it up on that. And Marion Gruber, who's, who's at FDA, basically made it pretty clear, I thought, that this was, this was the vote. This was the vote. 
But I think because we just recently done something with dengue vaccine where there were two votes on, on that had different ages, people thought that's what we were about to do. So if you ask those people post-mortem why they voted no, they misunderstood the instruction. That was it. Go ahead, Paul, Paul, some other questions. I see some of them on our chat and I'll ask him as well. You know, this technology using the RNA is intriguing and the efficacy is terrific. Why not expand this to influenza, for example, It'd be so much easier, I would think annually to tweak the RNA than to have to produce you know, gazillions of viral particles. What are your thoughts about how this technology, if this proves to be as effective and safe as we think uh, for other vaccines? Right. So, so this, although the, this is the first time we've ever used mRNA commercially, the, the, vex, the, the idea of using mRNA has been around for a while. I mean, Drew Weissman and Catalan Kuroki at the University of Pennsylvania actually were the first ones to show you could, that modified mRNA could act as a vaccine. So it's, it's been around for almost 15 years. And, and people have been looking at a variety of other pathogens, John, just as like you say, the uh, in, in, influenza, HIV, malaria, and others. So um, and we'll see whether those can rise to the top. We'll see. Although this is not easily scaled up. That lipid nanoparticle is not easily scaled up. In fact, um, there's a guy named Vijay Saman who was head of Merck Manufacturing Division. When we first started talking about mRNA vaccines, he called me on the phone and said, this is going to be really difficult. Because if you look at the chemistry of how you make that lipid nanoparticle, it's not easy. And, and, I, and, and I, we, nobody ever talks about that. But you know, we, we, the, the, the problem we currently have is mass production, mass distribution, and mass administration. And, and the last two, mass distribution and mass administration, I think we can do a much better job at. But it is not easy to mass produce produce this, this product. And I, there may be glitches along the way. I, well, that's why we will benefit from hopefully a third vaccine and a fourth vaccine and a fifth vaccine. And the ones we haven't talked about are Novavax and, uh, and Sanofi GSK have a purified protein approach, which are also moving along and hopefully we'll get, get to that by April. Go ahead, John. So more, more thoughts, uh, Paul, and questions. One thing I, for our audience, I'm not sure everyone knows, but um, you know, Paul was the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. It sounds very easy, but I remember, you know, years worth of persistence on Paul's, uh, there were setbacks. He never gave up, was driven to make this happen. And the world is a much better place for it. So I, I'm at the risk of embarrassing you. Uh, it wasn't just the idea, it was the carry through and the years of persistence to make it happen. And um, the other aspect of Paul, I think people need to know He's uh, a vehement pro-vaccine advocate. Um, I think all of us, hopefully in the audience, recognize one of the greatest public health achievements in history have been immunization and, and the creation of the getting rid of all these childhood diseases. And Paul, I show, I live near a cemetery. It's full of children from the 1700s. The whole cemetery is just children. And we've, because of immunization, moved beyond that. But this is, there's been a high price for you. I know uh, the anti-vax Lobby is very aggressive, and, and Paul has been a steadfast and consistent advocate. So I, I think those are very important things to, um, for everybody in the audience to know. Uh, I guess a couple more questions for you, Paul. And one of them involves children um, getting this virus. And I agree with you, this is a bizarre virus. And one of my anxieties are a lot of asymptomatic children, and they're getting sick, and you know, you're hammering these ACE2 receptors. And we are seeing a spectrum when you have the myocarditis kids with inflammation are, you know, we need to understand whether lots of kids are getting subclinical myocarditis from this virus. So, you know, how do you, what are your thoughts about where we need to go to figure that out? Because I worry this is a much more severe 
long-term infection than we realize, much like polio in some sense was. No, that's a really important point. I mean, this virus causes vasculitis, so it affects a variety of organ systems. And I think this is a research-rich area. We, we really need to, to drill down and figure out what's going on, it's, it's, and including for the, the adult side of the long haulers, what exactly is going on with those people? I'm sure it's more than one thing. But no, you're right. I, I, I'm sure in the, in the years and even arguably decades to come, we're gonna learn a lot more about this virus. Right now, we're just trying to catch up with a vaccine. Let's talk about vaccine disinformation. So I know it's microchipped, so the CDC is gonna track me and my, my wife will be sterilized. And you know I've gone down the list. So just, shall we do a fact check? The, the, the chips are too big to fit in the syringe. I mean, I'll, I'll let you run through a little bit of a fact check. There are four or five misinformations out there very aggressively now. So I'll let you roll with that for a minute. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I, the, so the anti-vaccine people, not surprisingly, come out in full force. They have a, um, a video called Plandemic, uh, which came out a few months ago, but had like 8 million views in the first couple of weeks. Um, it was the, the usual stuff, right? It's It's the masks contain SARS-CoV-2, the influenza virus vaccine, sorry, contains SARS-CoV-2, that there are healing microbes in the ocean that can make your SARS-CoV-2 better, um, that Bill Gates has inserted microchips into this so that he can you know, monitor you, or that the government has done that, that Bill Gates created the, the pandemic so that he could make money because apparently $60 billion was not enough for him. Um, and, you know, and, and on and on and on. I, I, and, oh, the, and the pregnancy thing, right? The, first of all, there's no evidence that wild type virus actually affects fertility. But the, the whole vaccine thing comes from the, the, the false notion that SARS-CoV-2 spike protein mimics a protein called syncytion 1, which is on placental cells, which is actually not true either. So even that's wrong. I mean, I, you know, I, I like, well, this is going to sound terrible, but it's true. It's like, I, I follow what the, the anti-vaccine people are, are, are worried about. You know, like, are they, because there were seven cases of Bell's palsy, for example, in those two trials, the Pfizer Moderna trial, um, seven cases out of 37,000 people, which worked out to about eight cases per 10,000 per year, something like that, but greater than the background rate, which is like 1.2 per 10,000 per year, um, and which was the background rate I mean, when the placebo group, that was, there was one case in 37,000. So, you know, I, I do worry about that, but haven't heard that yet, which makes me feel better. I mean, Maurice Hillman, is the, who's the father of modern vaccines, you know, said it best, I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first 3 million doses are out there. Well, 5 million doses are out there, at least in people. So that's, that makes me feel a little better. So I always kind of monitor what the anti-vaccine people are worried about, because if they're worried about it, I feel much better, you know, because they're like never right. So I guess we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. Paul, there, there is a question here. There's a, from one of our uh, participants. There's a new viral post on Facebook about a physician who got ITP post-vaccine and unfortunately passed away. I'm very concerned about the repercussions of properly many more stories like this that will scare people off from the vaccine. Comments on ITP and then the, uh, a further response to that. Yeah, so, so I mean, that's going to happen, right? I mean, SARS-CoV-2, the, these vaccines are designed to prevent SARS-CoV-2 infections, not everything else that happens in life. So there are always going to be these temporal associations. The question is, is, are these causal or coincidental associations? That particular case was interesting in that there was sort of a drop to a, almost a zero platelet count within three days, um, which is certainly faster than you would expect for an antibody mediated process by the vaccine after dose one. That's a little fast for that. Uh, and, and also it was, it was a, a, a dense thrombocytopenia. I mean, it was, it was zero. No one could get this person's antibody count up. And it makes you wonder, and, and again, there's so much more information that has to come out about this case, whether there was a complete megakaryocyte shutdown in this person for whatever reason. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it'd be interesting to see what the bone marrow showed, 
um, or whether there's more information. But you're right, we're going to be dealing dealing with these um, these temporal associations, and hopefully, what the CDC can do is is as more and more people get vaccinated, you got millions of people who are vaccinated, and then millions of people who aren't vaccinated because you're not going to vaccinate everybody at once. Well, you will be able to see whether or not any of these associations are occurring at a greater at a rate greater than background rate. That's going to be the key. Which was a, the sort of the story with the swine flu vaccine in 1976. You know, transverse myelitis rate of roughly you know one per hundred thousand in the vaccine was was it seemed to be greater than what was seen in the background, right? All right, we're almost out of time, and uh, my my last question and uh, is is uh, you know tell us just give us a sense of. Uh, when we'll get back to normality based uh, using vaccines or, or natural immunity, herd immunity. What is your thought? What does September look like? What does next Christmas, Thanksgiving look like, Hanukkah? Well, so, so there's, a, there's a formula for the percentage of, for, for how many people you need to, to vaccinate or the percentage of the population you need to vaccinate based on two factors. One is contagiousness of the virus and two is efficacy of the vaccine. It's, it's actually, it's R naught minus one over R naught divided by vaccine efficacy. So here, let's assume an R naught of two for argument's sake, two minus one over two is 0.5. If you assume an efficacy of 95%, then it's sort of 0.5 divided by 95%. So you're really talking about if there, that if you vaccinate 50% of the population that you could start to see a stopping of the spread. But again, there's that also would have to assume that, that you're preventing contagiousness, which I'm not sure. The other thing that gets no plan, I'll stop with this, this, this last sentence, is that, that we talk about 20 million people having been infected in this country. That's, that's people who've been tested to be infected. I mean, there are a lot of people who are, who are infected never got tested. So when you do antibody surveillance studies, the suggestion is that that, that factor is, that's probably off by a factor of three. It's probably at least 60 million people that have been infected, which is almost 20% of the population at this point. Those are people who are probably not, when infected, when exposed to the virus again, are probably not gonna get sick. So you have that, that cushion. And then, so you have to get over that cushion. So I'm gonna predict if we can vaccinate half of, the, half of this country, which if we give a million doses a day, we can do in five months, that we can start to see this the stopping and the spread of this virus. But again, as I say about this virus, you should never make predictions. And I see how this is being recorded, which is a problem because I just made a prediction that no doubt is gonna be wrong, but, uh, but I'll still make it. Thank you, Paul. And uh, we did get a comment from Dr. Susan Ratson, who, uh, who was the former chief of endocrinology, uh, who worked with Dr. Markowitz. And in uh, her comment is, uh, she, in capital letters, she says, thank you, Dr. Markowitz for bringing us, uh, Paul, uh, off it and, and keeping you safe and, and with everything you have done. So thank you again. I know you're very busy. Thank you for taking time to uh, share your thoughts with the Connecticut community, which, uh, and this, by the way, goes throughout the country. This is uh, one of those podcasts that everyone listens to, and I'm sure this will be a very popular one. And we did see a cat, I think, roaming behind you, or it was, uh, maybe it was a cat. Oh, <laughs> Very good. Oh, uh, Thank you again, uh, John. Thank you again for your comments. And uh, we'll see everyone again on Tuesday for Grand Rounds and a week, uh, a week from today for the next uh, Ask the Expert session. So take care, everyone. Be safe. Bye-bye. Thank you, Paul. Bye-bye. Thank you.